Is alcoholism a disease? As we go to scripture for our answer, we'll consult AA's big book, grab a couple of volumes of Luther's works, pull in the thoughts of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and discover the tactic of Screwtape's demonic colleague, Guzzle. Let's go. Having been to church, having heard God's word preached to you, for you, and I hope having received the Lord's Supper in Holy Communion, it's now time, my friends, to supplement the nourishment that you've received with a little, a little vitamin C, D, that is Cross Defense. Here on Cross Defense, we work to equip your mind, excite your imagination, and comfort your soul, all with God's word, rightly distinguishing between the law and the gospel to that end. We focus on cultural and curious topics that you contend with every single day of your life. And so we take on a wide variety of topics, as you can imagine. I want to thank you right now, before we get going on today's show, for listening to the show and for sending us your questions and your suggestions for topics for the show. We get a lot of them, and they help us know what you would like to learn more about. Cross-defense listeners are a very thoughtful group of people. You guys are very engaged in your Christian walk. You are trying to equip your mind, excite your imagination, make it a holy imagination, and most of all, you want to receive a word that comforts your soul, and more than that, comforts the souls of your neighbors. You are truly trying your hardest to make a bold and faithful witness to all those in your lives, and for that, I want to encourage you, and I want to implore you to keep it up and do my best to engage with the topics that you so desperately want to know more about. If you would like to ask a question or to offer a suggestion for a future show, the easiest way you can do so is by sending me an email via the contact form at my church's website. That way I get it quickly and efficiently. You can go to stmarksferndale.com forward slash contact. Or if you just go to stmarksferndale.com, you'll see the contact menu there or page there at the top of the menu. It's stmarksferndale.com forward slash contact. All right. So if you're new to the show and you're wondering, who's this guy I'm listening to? Well, I'm Reverend Tyrell Bramwell, and I have the privilege of serving the Christians who the Holy Spirit gathers around his word and sacraments, God's word and sacraments, at St. Mark Lutheran Church out here in Ferndale, California. And we have partnered with KFUO to bring you this show, to give me time to work on it for your benefit, as it is also a blessing to those around us here in St. Mark's, at St. Mark's in Ferndale. And uh, it is a, a very valuable tool that helps us witness to our neighbors as we produce this content from our winged lion studio, as I like to say. Okay, so let's get into today's topic. Is alcoholism a disease? This is today's question. As we go to scripture for our answer, we are going to consult 
The Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book makes sense. We're going to grab a couple volumes of Luther's works. We're going to pull in the thoughts of Reverend Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that World War II martyr you may or may not know about. And we're going to discover that C.S. Lewis was not the first one to write from the perspective of a, uh, a demon, or at least to name demons and uh, have the imagination of the Christian excited that way to understand the word by comprehending it in no uncertain terms. So uh, what I mean by that is Luther did it as well, and he talked about a demon named Guzzle. <laughs> We're going to talk about that as we move through the show. We have three segments ahead of us, so stick with us through the whole thing. Don't click away until we get to the very end and... Uh, that way you, you hear all this wonderful content I just told you we're going to deliver. The curious topic for today's show is alcoholism. Is it a disease? That's the question. Now, according to the Indiana University Health website, the American Medical Association, AMA, classified alcoholism as a disease in 1956. So right there, that's really recently in the grand scheme of human history. Now, that's not to say someone before the AMA never called it a disease. There's certainly language like that out there. I mean, we talk about sin as a sickness. So there is certainly the, uh, the high probability that people before 1956 discussed alcoholism or drunkenness as a disease well before 1956. But that's the first time it showed up in our culture officially. And the AMA included addiction as a disease in 1987. So ex extending the, uh, the addiction issue from alcohol to drugs and, and other addictions. So uh, there's that. The site also says in 2011, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM, joined the AMA defining addiction as a chronic brain disorder, not a behavior problem or just the result of making bad choices. So they took it from a behavioral problem, a self-control issue, or just the result of making bad choices, to use their language, and they moved it into the category of chronic brain disorder. This is going to be something that's a chemical a reaction, a deficiency of the, of the mind, of the brain, this sort of thing, not the mind, but the brain, the, the the organ, um, a biological. And we're going to see as we have this conversation if that's what God's word does with alcoholism or not. So digging a little further on this medical side of the question before we get to scripture, just to kind of lay out the, the, um, the foundation of what we're dealing with in our society today, in our cultural minds, uh, perception of the question. It's interesting to learn from an article at the National Library of Medicine that traces, here's what it says, quote, traces the clinical and scientific thinking about alcoholism typologies or categories during the past 150 years. Apparently, as this breakdown on the National Library of Medicine states, apparently during this time, the history of typologies, categories, thinking about alcoholics can be roughly divided into three periods. And I'm quoting here, the pre-scientific period of clinical speculation, and that goes from 1850 to 1940, the era of review and synthesis, 
1941 to 1960, and then the period of increasing sophisticated empirical research, 1960 to present. That's an interesting statement right there, increasing sophisticated empirical research, so scientific research done by the empirical method. Okay, so what's the point here? Simply to show that the medical and scientific analysis of alcoholism, and therefore the label of it as a, quote, disease, is relatively new to the conversation. Men and women were alcoholics long before 1850, and as I said, they could have been described as having a disease back way when, you know, way before, who knows, but before 1850, we know we had that problem. And just one example that jumps to mind is Proverbs 23, 21. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, I know cross-defense listeners love to have their Bibles at the ready, their sword equipped and ready to engage so they can build up their mind that way. Proverbs 23, 21 says, For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Now, Proverbs was written in the 10th century B.C., just, just as an example, well before 1850. So the pre-scientific era, and I want to make sure we note this, that they describe the scientific era as what? Increasingly sophisticated empirical research. Now, science, the word science is knowledge. People are certainly scientific, knowledge-seeking well before 1850. That, that's kind of becoming a pet peeve of mine because we're, we're in a culture that the, the chief source of knowledge continues to be empirical science. But sometimes empirical science cannot answer the question at hand. Sometimes that's not the best science, best knowledge source. Sometimes we have to rely on other fields of study and, and knowledge seeking. So just, just kind of a little soapbox in mind. But we do want to note that in Proverbs 23, 21, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, we have two similar things put together, drunkenness and gluttony. And that is really what the problem is with alcoholism, isn't it? It's an overconsumption, inebriation, intoxication, of, of the mind through alcohol. Well, you can, and that's the addiction connection as well, right? We have that with drugs. Well, you can be addicted to other things too. You can be addicted to uh, food, just eating too much. Americans have this problem just as a culture. You could be addicted to certain activities. You can be addict, you can have an addictive mind and an addictive personality. And that's where this, they're going to draw this, this, uh, parallel to the chronic brain disorder. And so for us Christians, we would understand gluttony to be in that category of the uh, ASAM, um, American Society of Addiction Medicine too. So gluttony ties in with this to some degree or another. So why make this observation? Why, why make this observation that takes us back to the 10th century BC, well beyond 1850? Because as I said, it, it Kind of, well, let me elaborate on what I said. In pastoral care, we clergy types try to listen for the question behind the question. What's the concern driving the inquiry? That's, that's what we're thinking about when someone asks a question. We want to best serve them. So we want to try to 
we're not necessarily investigating, although there's a sense of that in a, in a very healthy, positive way, not in a, a snoopy way. But we are trying to kind of look behind the curtain a little bit and see what's driving this question. And so to do so, we need to start this episode by showing quite quickly that doctors and scientists don't have all the answers. They just don't, not on every single subject and not on this subject. They're not always the smartest guys in the room, so to speak. Not if the matter at hand is ultimately beyond their expertise. I know, I know. We live in a society where Everybody has an opinion on everything, and we think that they should be able to speak on it. And the more letters you have your, after your name or the higher pedigree of an institution you went to, if it's an Ivy League school or such thing like this, they're all, all of a sudden their opinion is weighted more on all topics. But that's just not the case. We would be well served to avoid ultra-crepidarianism and get back to a world where vocational boundaries are appreciated for the blessing that they are. Now, that big fancy word I just threw down, ultra-crepidarianism, that is the word for speaking beyond your expertise. And just because doctors know quite a bit about alcoholism, their field of expertise doesn't make them the best experts to address what alcoholism truly is. For that, I would commend to you this thought that your pastor is the more appropriate expert. Consult him. Get him going and, and researching this and, and, and looking into this for you. That's what your doctor is going to do. You're going to sit in the room. You, you ever wonder why you sit in that doctor's room so long? I mean, you see the doctor for a very brief amount of time compared to how long you sit in the room. Well, the doctor has to research things has to look things up, has to try to grasp what it is you're asking, what it is you're coming to him with, that he can give you an educated and generally known answer to that question, not just his opinion. Your pastor does the same thing by going and consulting with God's word and then getting back to you. So I mentioned that to give him some grace if he doesn't have all the answers ready at the, you know, at the draw. He may not be able to quick draw your answer, but he is an expert in theological matters and the care of souls that God has sent to you to be able to go and research these things and then come back to you with what we might call a diagnosis and uh, some, some forward motion of treatment <laughs> to use medical language. Okay, is that a weird statement to digest that your pastor may be more of an expert on something like this than your doctor? Well, just take a minute, friend. I get it. Let that sink in. We live in an anti-clerical age. Most people don't give pastors much credence these days, and we, we hear all the time how we're supposed to follow the science, so I, I realize I'm, I'm preaching a radical message to you right now. We do live in an age of magisterial reason. What is that? Well, that's where we take our human reason and we lord it over a magistrate, over God's wisdom, his revealed word. God's wisdom is seen as foolishness, and man's foolishness is perceived as wisdom in this day and age. We've elevated our reason above God's word, and we think the empirical method of science, that increasingly sophisticated empirical research, that discovery is the answer to everything. Well, it doesn't answer everything. 
does it? No, sometimes it falls short. As a Christian, keep your 1 Corinthians 1 decoder ring on at all times, my friends. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's from 1 Corinthians 1. Go take a look at it as you have time. Now, Dr. Foster Kennedy a neurologist seemed to understand this concept that I'm conveying in this first segment of the show, quoting from the medical view on Alcoholics Anonymous in the appendices of the big book, we read his words. This is what they say. This organization of Alcoholics Anonymous calls on two of the greatest reservoirs of power known to man. Now hear this, my friends, religion and that instinct for association with one's fellows. Now, I think our profession, he says, must take appreciative cognizance of this great therapeutic weapon, that is the twofold religion and fellowship weapon. If we do not do so, we shall stand convicted of emotional sterility and of having lost the faith that moves mountains, without which medicine can do little. Without faith, that can move mountains, medicine can do little. Amen, Dr. Kennedy. This is a doctor who understands the ministerial use of reason, that is, using his human reason humbly in service to what God has revealed in his word, submitting to God's wisdom in our vocations. That's why he cites, references, Matthew 17. If you have your Bibles at the ready, continue to look with me at these texts. Matthew 17, starting at verse 14, we read, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Mm, mm, mm. Matthew 17. Okay, let's take a break right there. We'll come back and we'll see what Reverend Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that World War II martyr, has to say on this subject. Hello, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, host of Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning at 11 a.m., join me and a guest pastor as we explore God's Word, which strengthens our faith and guides our lives. You can listen over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. 
Just search for Thy Strong Word only from KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Reverend Dietrich Bonhoeffer, well known for his book, The Cost of Discipleship, also the author of Life Together, which we're going to quote here today, agreed with Dr. Kennedy. In his book, Life Together, he writes this, The most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. (laughs) What a statement. I'm going to say it again just because it's so good. The most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. Mm. The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it also does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can be only a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart, and yet he never plumbs its ultimate depth. The Christian brother knows when I come to him, here is a sinner like myself, a godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's forgiveness. The psychiatrist views me as if there were no God. The brother views me as I am before the judging and merciful God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, so well said, Reverend Bonhoeffer. Thank you for that gem of a word. When we ask, is alcoholism a disease? We reveal the more pressing question, and with it, we expose the context required for that question. What is that context? The clinic, medicine, healthcare, our prevailing culture. As Bonhoeffer said, in the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. So yes, in our healthcare-focused culture, alcoholism is seen as a disease. But what did Bonhoeffer say next? In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart, and yet he never plums its ultimate depth. See, he's depth. He's he's describing the method of the psychiatrist. He's got to get to know your problem. Well, the sinner, your neighbor, (laughs) the Christian brother, your pastor, he already knows what the problem is. He doesn't have to inquire more about what the problem is. The root of the problem is your sin. Your sin. The Christian brother knows when I come to him, here is a sinner like myself, a godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's forgiveness. The psychiatrist views me as if there were no God. That's so true. Psychiatry is actually developed out of 
a, a secular mindset coming from this perspective, this post-enlightenment uh, thought that God is dead, that we now have a way of analyzing and understanding everything going on within the heart and mind and body of a person. No, no. Well, one, God is not dead. And two, the only way we can understand what's going on within the heart, mind, and soul, the body of the person, is to consult God, his word, the scriptures, and to believe what it says, and then to move forward with it. Now, sure, psychiatry has made great advances in the realm of science, as science can do, but how much better off would we all be if psychiatry, if this mental health care was actually tethered to God's word and worked from that presupposition rather than the presupposition that there is no God. We would be far, far better served. The Christian brother, Bonhoeffer says, views me as I am before the judging and merciful God in the cross of Jesus Christ. See, this is why Alcoholics Anonymous, which everyone thinks of when they think of helping alcoholics stop drinking has been so successful in that task. This is why. Because the founders, reaching back into 1935, didn't approach alcoholism as a disease for doctors to cure. Though they welcomed, they did welcome humble medical insight, as Dr. Kennedy's statement confirms, the big book says they work out their solution on the spiritual plane. Dr. William Silkworth writes, in nearly all cases, the alcoholic's ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. And, he says, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. So, at the emergence of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I would even contend to this day, the medical field even the mental medical field, has made little progress where Alcoholics Anonymous, with its spiritual operations, has advanced the health care, to use our common vernacular, of alcoholics tremendously because they approached it from a spiritual angle to start with. Again, the big book says, any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. Mm. Got to be open to the spiritual reality, okay? Now, of course, as Orthodox Christians, you and I, we may have some issues with uh, the AA, perhaps. Our view of God differs from what the AA presents. The AA is not a church. The AA is focused on using the spiritual discipline to help the patient, to help the alcoholic. And, and you may be aware of this, you may not. The God, the, the higher power of the alcoholic in AA can be anything. It can be a doorknob. It can be a teddy bear. It can be anything. But they want to get the person to think in the spiritual plane to be able to carry out the spiritual disciplines that they have... Um, perfected for their for their cause and their purpose. Now, we're going to have a problem with that from the Orthodox Christian perspective because we know there is one true God, and we don't want to encourage anyone to have a false idol. But that's not exactly what we're looking at today. 
we're looking at the distinction between seeing alcoholism as a disease or seeing it as a sin. The disease is handled by the medical field. Sin is handled by the spiritual field, the religious field, the pastoral, theological, Christian brother, that faith family, the fellowship, which, as we should note, Dr. Kennedy said, religion and a a desire for fellowship, these are the things that are powerful for the alcoholic. Okay, so there is a, a spiritual discipline involved, not medical and scientific empirical research spiritual discipline. For AA, that involves the need for a moral inventory, I'm quoting, a moral inventory, confession of personality defects, so our weaknesses, our defects, restitution of those harmed, helpfulness to others, and the necessity of belief in and a a dependence on God. That's the moral discipline, the spiritual discipline, I should say, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Is alcoholism a disease? Well, to use the wisdom of Bonhoeffer, yeah. If you ask a psychiatrist, if you ask a doctor, if you ask an American who lives in a healthcare-oriented culture where everything seems to be addressable by medicine and science, though it's far from that in reality, yeah, that's the answer. But if you ask a Christian, if you ask a pastor, well, then no, not clinically. No, it's not a disease. It's a spiritual problem, as AA has, is a testimony to. Not because Alcoholics Anonymous says it is, although that is a a good testimony, but because God says it is. So now, Turn those open Bibles with me to Galatians 5.19, and this is really where we're going to anchor today's conversation. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." So that's Galatians 5, 19 to 24. And before these verses, we read, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 the things you want to do. Drunkenness is on the list of carnal desires, cravings, those things we want to do, that the Spirit is opposed to. So is drunkenness a disease or is it a desire? AA's Dr. Silkworth uses the synonym, as I just did, 
craving. Craving is another way to look at this. There is a craving within the alcoholic to have another drink for various reasons and purposes, but the craving exists nonetheless. When Dr. Luther, Martin Luther, lectured on Galatians 5, he said this, to this very day, so to the 16th century day, his day, people are searching for the basis of vices and virtues and have not yet discovered whether these are to be located in the rational or in the irrational part of man. Now, you get that? Are you hearing what he's saying? In the 16th century, just as in our day, in 2022, people were trying to locate the basis of vices and virtues in places other than where God locates them. That's what we're doing with alcoholism. Is it a disease? Well, Luther says that in the grand scheme of things, that's the wrong question and instructs us to see drunkenness as Scripture describes it. And this is what he says. With the apostle, therefore, you, Christian, should scorn the conditions and other deliriums of moral philosophy and know that you are either flesh or spirit and that both are recognized by their fruits, which the apostle plainly enumerates. So, to summarize, Luther is saying, okay, you can seek out understanding the basis of vices and virtues, but vices, alcoholism, trying to figure out, is it a rational thing? Is it irrational? Is it it about self-control? Is it a chronic brain disorder? And you can do that all day long. Well, you're still going to end up with the same question, and it's not going to have an answer. Or you can go with what Paul says in Galatians 5 and see God's answer that the problem is sin. We are either of the flesh, carnal desires, or of the spirit, and the spirit is the remedy. Now, we're going to look at that a little bit later because that's the treatment, That's the to use the medical term, that's the remedy to our problem, being in the spirit. Let's hold that off for just a little bit and see what else Luther has to say in his lecture on Galatians 5, specifically on drunkenness. He continues, Drunkenness is forbidden not only with regard to wine, but with regard to every other kind of drink. Hence, Luke 1.15 says, He shall drink no wine nor strong drink. Now, I want to pause here for a second. I really want to emphasize his next words. I really want you to hear this, dear Cross Defense listener. So, If you kind of were zoning out for a second, listen to my words again here. Listen to my voice. Here's what Luther says. And I'm going to repeat the sentence and then go right into the thing I want to emphasize. Drunkenness is forbidden, not only with regard to wine, but with regard to every other kind of drink. Hence, Luke 1.15 says, he shall drink no wine nor strong drink. That is anything intoxicating. Anything intoxicating, Luther stresses. And so I want to now extend that out. So not just strong drink, but anything intoxicating, meaning drugs. And especially as our culture is uh, normalizing marijuana use, marijuana. Because marijuana is smoked for a reason. When you smoke marijuana recreationally, you want to get high. You can't smoke marijuana just to get a little buzz. 
or as Scripture would describe drinking a drink of wine, for the heart to rejoice and to sing, to be, to be happy. No, you, you smoke pot to get high, to be intoxicated, and that falls under this. Okay, so, all right, back to Luther. Of course, abstinence from wine is commended in various passages of Scripture. So is sobriety. On the other hand, what drunkenness has caused is sufficiently shown by the historical accounts of the same Scripture in the cases of Noah and Lot. I love that he emphasizes that those are historical accounts. We need to do more of that today. These Old Testament documents are historical. Noah and Lot, whose drunkenness was not their own fault, yet did not occur without harm to others. Drunkenness is a problem, isn't it? We all know that. It's a problem that causes harm, harm to ourselves and harms to, harm to our neighbors. Now, as I think about this, I am reminded of how things are here in California and in other places in our country. Speaking of addiction as a disease over and against how Scripture labels carnal desires as works of the flesh, that is, sin, has not led to cures for the disease, but more people being harmed by sin. There's a, there's a shift occurring, or that has occurred. As our society has grown increasingly godless, we've stopped considering substance abuse, be it drugs or alcohol, as a spiritual problem, and started classifying it in terms of health care. We do the same thing with gluttony. We don't see gluttony as a spiritual problem, like with food, overeating. We don't see that as a spiritual problem anymore. We see it as a dietary problem, a medical problem that can be fixed with instruction and teaching and an education, but also by putting a calorie count on the back of the box. Well, how about we put a Bible verse on the back of the box? It's a spiritual problem. We've turned sinners in our society into victims by removing the personal responsibility from the user, from the drunkard. What's worse, we took that responsibility and didn't just remove it from the user, from the sinner, but we relocated it to the actual victims, that is, on the addict's neighbors, close and distant. In California, we have taxpayer-funded programs that supply drug addicts with clean needles and safe places for them to get high. This is a program that would have never been conceived of when Christian values dominated our society because we recognize that intoxication of all kinds is a sin. It wouldn't suffice to make sinning as safe as possible. That's ludicrous. That's not helping the sinner or the people harmed by their sin. And that's going to take us to the liturgically familiar passage of 1 John 1, 6 to 10, right after the break. Martin Luther wrote in his small catechism, as the head of the family should teach them in a simple way to his household. He reminded the church then and today to learn by heart the basics of the Word of God and the Gospel. I'm Pastor Brady Finner, host of Concord Matters. Beginning September 24th, join me as we get back to the basics with the six chief parts. Grab your catechism and be ready for a simple, theologically rich study with lots of Jesus. Saturday mornings at 10 on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get podcasts. 
1 John 1, 6-10, if we say we have no fellowship with him, with God our Father, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now Luther looked around his German land as we ought to do in America and take in all of our tent cities, which comes with addiction and alcoholism and all these problems. And Luther said, it's certainly clear that in our lands, drunkenness is a kind of plague sent upon us by divine wrath. And you might notice the language of plague, because plague language, it does seem to be, tend to be disease language. And so if you want to understand alcoholism in a disease that way, as a disease that way, as a sinful disease, as a sin sickness, that's fair game. Go for it. I would say that's awesome. That's a good way to understand it because then where are you going to go for your remedy? The cross, the solution to sin. Everywhere we flee, Luther said, everywhere we flee from a plague that strikes the flesh. And with all zeal, we arm ourselves and exercise care not to be carried off by it. But into this plague, we plunge ourselves with signal blindness. And there's no one even to warn us, let alone stop us. In fact, this plague rages so violently that there can be no hope of purging it out. That's a statement. That's a statement, my friend. There's no hope of purging it out. That's how widespread he saw the plague of drunkenness in the German lands. Now, Germans are known for their propensity to drink, aren't they? Now, before we come back to Galatians for our solution to the problem of drinking, of drunkenness, of alcoholism, to this desire of the flesh. Luther wrote something else on this topic in his thoughts on Psalm 101. And I got to say, if you're a fan of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, you're going to love this. What I'm about to read is definitely one of those gems that truly excite the, the holy imagination, perhaps drawing from what Daniel reveals about national angels. Luther says this, Every land must have its own devil, its own demon. Italy hers, France hers. Our German devil would be a good wineskin and would bear the name Guzzle. <laughs> How do you like that? Yes, Luther's giving a demon a name, Guzzle, just like Lewis did with screw tape and Wormwood. Because, Guzzle, because he is so thirsty and parched, that he cannot be cooled even by all his great guzzling of wine and beer. <laughs> this is the German devil. And such an e eternal thirst, I'm afraid, Luther says, will remain as Germany's plague until the last day. Preachers have tried to check it with God's word, authorities with prohibition. Some of the noblemen have exchanged mutual pledges. Restraint has also been furnished and is still being furnished daily by the great and fearful damage, the disgrace and murder and other misfortunes that come to body and soul before our eyes, which easily ought to scare us away. But Guzzle remains an almighty idol among us Germans. 
and he acts like the sea and like dropsy. The sea does not become full from the many waters that flow into it. Dropsy becomes thirstier and worse from drinking. He says, Sirach says that wine was made, as Psalm 104.15 also says, that man might become happy through it and strengthen his life. But guzzling makes us mad and foolish, giving us death and all kinds of plagues and sins along with it. Well, there is not enough time or space, Luther says, here to speak of that swinish idol guzzle. Finally, he also rewards his faithful servants very fairly so that they feel it. So while Screwtape would go on to teach the younger English demon Wormwood how to entice gluttony through delicacy, in Germany, Guzzle was quite successful by sticking with excess. Interesting, interesting stuff. I believe Guzzle has taught the American devil his tricks. We too are gluttons for alcohol, for drugs, for food, for stuff, for everything. So let's get to the solution. That's why questions like today's are asked. Is alcoholism a disease? This isn't a purely academic inquiry. That's not why you guys suggest show topics. That's not why you, you want to know questions and, and equip your mind more about it. That's not why you want to be comforted, comforted in the soul and excite your imagination. No, it's not an academic inquiry just because you're curious. These are recon questions. This sort of question is preparatory, as is to be commended and encouraged. Keep it up, cross-defense listeners, even while the question is slightly adjusted to be accurate. Alcoholism is a work of the flesh that Paul tells us is countered by the fruit of the Spirit. The treatment is not medicinal, as we already heard from the AA doctors, as the big book properly acknowledges, the remedy to alcoholism is found on the spiritual plane. Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I included 17 in that reading as well. Luther elaborates on the spirit solution to all desires of the flesh, all of them, alcoholism included. He says, those who despair of their own strength hear the word of faith first, that those who hear believe, that those who believe invoke, that those who invoke be heard, that those who have been heard receive the spirit of love. That after receiving the Spirit, they walk in the Spirit and do not perform the desires of the flesh, but crucify them. And that those who have been crucified arise with Christ and possess the kingdom of God. What is he saying? What's he talking about? Baptism. Baptism. He's saying that the solution to the alcoholic's problem is baptism. When a person is in despair over their desire to sin, to have one more drink, he is to hear the word so that he'll believe the word. And believing it, he will invoke the Lord to hear his cry for help. And having been heard by the Lord, he will receive the spirit of love. 
which will enable him to walk in the Spirit and resist the desires of the flesh. This is what Galatians 5.24 calls crucifying the flesh. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When we live constantly in our baptism, daily remembering our baptism, repenting of sin, and coming back to the cross, we are built up by the Spirit to walk according with the Spirit, to keep step with the Spirit, as Galatians says. This isn't fancy Christian lingo for an ideological battle. I crucified the flesh. No, Paul means literally crucify your flesh. How do we do that? Well, AA created a law-based 12-step program of discipline. The church's method is baptism. Because that's literally where your flesh is crucified with Christ Jesus. Literally. That's how your flesh is crucified. In baptism, you give to Christ all your sins, all your temptations, all the evil you bring to him, and he is crucified for them. That happened some 2,000 years ago when he went to the cross. When he went to the cross, he took your sins. He took the alcoholics one more drink and all the fallout from that drink, all the harm. He took all of that carnal desire with him to the cross, bearing it on his shoulders so that you would be freed from it. Now, does this mean you're not going to be tempted ever again that the alcoholic once baptized is just like happy-go-lucky and everything's roses and sunshine? No. It means that you now have a system, a gospel-based system, by which to counter the desires of the flesh. A spiritual, Holy Spirit-based system. Want another drink? Remember your baptism. Remember to repent of that sin. Turn back to Jesus. Cling to the cross. Cling so hard to the cross that the blood of Christ gets sticky between your flesh and the wood of the cross and it holds you there. Think of it like this. It is real. He really died for you. All those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, Galatians says. Literally, albeit spiritually, the desire to sin the desire to drink, to give in to any of the desires of the flesh, the desire to indulge them is countered best through baptism, your daily remembrance of your baptism. Baptism is is not a one-day event. It begins on your baptism day, but it carries itself forward throughout your walk as a Christian every day of your life until it is finally realized at your death, or when the Lord returns. That is when your baptism is finally, fully realized, and you will sin no more, as promised at the font. By hearing the word of God, remembering your baptism, making the sign of the cross in front of yourself. Maybe you want to do that every time you're tempted to take a drink. Literally make the sign of the cross in front of you to remember your baptism, to find the strength 
to lean on the spirit and then counter the desire, the urge to give in to your sin, to your flesh by hearing the word of God and believing it so that you do what believers do as you are a believer. Fall to your knees in prayer for mercy. Cry out to the Lord, help me, Lord, and thereby receive his help in Christ crucified and resurrected in the giving of the spirit that now dwells within you. Jesus is the ultimate answer to all of our sins. Yes, truly, not just theologically, hypothetically, ideologically, not just some nice sentiment on a card. This isn't just pie in the sky, cloud cloud hopping stuff, (laughs) whatever that is. Jesus truly is the answer to alcoholism. The sin of alcoholism. Is it a disease? Mm, If you ask a doctor, if you ask an American immersed in a healthcare culture, separated from God, a secular American healthcare culture, yeah, that's the answer. It's a disease. But God's word says it's something worse than a disease. It's a sin. Thanks be to God, it's a sin though. Why? Because our sins have been forgiven by the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for alcoholics. Praise be to God. He died for those who've given into the desires of the flesh, who crave sinfulness, and that's everyone. Whether their sin of choice is alcoholism, sexual immorality, kleptomania, whatever, whatever fancy medically sounding words we want to attach to it, we're all sinners with our own pet sins. Every alcoholic has someone to whom they can bring Not their disease, but their sin, Jesus. And he takes it from them and he crucifies it, giving them in return the fruit of the Spirit that they may walk by the Spirit. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Now, we're going to have to leave it right there for today. I'm sure there's more we could say on the subject. Thank you, though, for listening. I pray that in some small way, you were equipped, you were excited in the imagination, and and ultimately, your soul was comforted with God's word. As we spent some time in Galatians 5, and in some other places in scripture today, as we were discerning this question of, is alcoholism a sin? Understanding not how the world would describe it in our modern medical age, but as scripture describes it, as God describes it. If the show was a blessing to you, my friends, please consider giving it a five-star review on your favorite podcast app and sharing it with a friend. Until next week, Christ be with you. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.